Welcome to another edition of the Morning Devotional. Today is Thursday, February 16th, 2023. This is edition number 29 of season 8 as we continue working our way through the Westminster Confession of Faith. My name is Pastor William Hill. I'm the pastor of Providence Presbyterian Church located in Evansville, Indiana. Let's pray and then we'll look at paragraph 5 of chapter 5 of the Westminster Confession of Faith on the Doctrine of Providence. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, as we come now to this portion of this historic document that accurately summarizes all that you have told us in your word on these very important matters, we come pleading your grace and mercy that your spirit would help us and as we study these things that it would not merely fill our minds but it would also fill our lives, that we would walk humbly with you and that we would trust and lean upon you as you govern uh, all your creatures and all their actions. We thank you that you are sovereign, that there is no God like you. We thank you that you care for pitiful creatures of dust, and we thank you that you have redeemed us to yourself. May you help us now by your Spirit. May you give to us what we need, and may we learn from it, we ask for Christ's sake. Amen. Well, paragraph five is a very uh, useful paragraph, as they all are, of course, uh, as we seek to understand more about these very important doctrines and matters of the church, matters that are not only doctrinal, but matters that are also very pastoral. Now, I've often said to my congregation here at Providence that the Westminster Confession of Faith and the Larger and Shorter Catechism are not just statements of dry, dusty, theological um, propositions and and, and arguments uh, useful for pastors and scholars and theologians that much of what is written in the in this in the Westminster standards is very pastoral paragraph five of this chapter is is one of them very helpful and useful to us as we as the redeemed of the Lord recognize that God is uniquely governing us as his as his uh, chosen people. <clears throat> but in that <clears throat> comes a number of questions, of course, that naturally fall out as those who are redeemed. And this paragraph seeks to answer, um, uh, answer it. In the words of, um, again, borrowing from Chad Van Dixhorn's fine book, Confessing the Faith, A Reader's Guide to the Westminster Confession of Faith, he says that this chapter is primarily pastoral in its concern. It seeks to explain to us why a God who is most wise, righteous, and gracious would not infrequently leave us in sin or suffering. Now let's face it, uh, we've all had that thought. If I belong to the, the God of heaven who is mighty and powerful, able to do all that he wishes and wills, all that is consistent with who he is, why does he allow and why does he permit, why does he purpose to allow his children to suffer and to be tempted with sin. Why is it, he continues, that the one who will tempt no man leaves us to temptations? How is it that the one who is holy will leave us with the corruption of our own hearts? Why does a loving father chastise his own dear children for their former sins as he did with David in 1 Samuel 24? In short, what is the reason for God revealing unto us the often hidden strength of corruption and deceitfulness of our own hearts? Now let me read the paragraph as we consider these questions and seek to try to come to some understanding of of these um, things. 
There we read paragraph 5 of chapter 5, The most wise, righteous, and gracious God doth oftentimes leave for a season his own children to manifold temptations in the corruption of their own hearts, to chastise them for their former sins, or to discover unto them the hidden strength of corruption and deceitfulness of their hearts, that they may be humbled, and to raise them to a more close and constant dependence for their support upon himself, and to make them more watchful against all future occasions of sin, <clears throat> and for other, and for sundry other just and holy ends. And so we have not only the statement of the problem, as I've already read, but we have also the solution, or at least the answer. Now the question, of course, is that for us, the, the answer is probably not going to make things all better. I get that. I understand that pastorally. I recognize that the struggle with temptation and sin is a burden that we all carry. We live as the church militant. We are pilgriming in this world, and we live um, with this irreconcilable war, which we will see later on in the confession, that goes on between the flesh and the spirit. And that is with us day and night, and it never ceases. It's an irreconcilable war. And as a result of that, we are sometimes... um, left for a season uh, to manifold temptations and the corruption of our own hearts that God might chastise them for their former sins that are discover unto them the hidden strength of corruption. That is to say that we need to be made more aware of the fallenness of our own condition. That we're not, though redeemed of the Lord, we are not yet in heaven. We are not in glory. And so this battle will continue as we work through the process of sanctification all of our days. And there will be dark times through it in which the Lord himself will lead us into temptation or even, as the confession says, chastise us for our former sins. And so as we read um, through some of what Dr. Van Dixhorn as it mentions here, he, he says here, as we might expect from the one who is God himself, there is no single reason for this exposure to suffering and to our own sin. God uses it to humble us. Now that's, of course, one of the goals of falling into sin and being chastised for our former sins and, and being disciplined by, as a son by a loving father, that we might be humbled, that we might recognize that um, that that we weren't careful, we weren't watchful, we weren't paying attention, we weren't praying that prayer that the Lord Jesus Christ taught his disciples to pray, to watch and pray lest they enter into temptation. Van Dixorn goes on, he says, he did so for the proud people of Jerusalem and their king, Hezekiah, so long ago. <clears throat> now that, <clears throat> the record of that account, I apologize for my throat, it's, my allergy season is beginning and so I'm going to be struggling with it for some time, but in Anyway, in 2 Chronicles 32 and verses 25, well, really beginning in verse 24, reading through verse 31, we see an example of this very thing that I've stated. In those days, Hezekiah became sick and was at the point of death, and he prayed to the Lord. And he answered him and gave him a sign, but Hezekiah did not make return according to the benefit done to him, for his heart was proud. Now, underscore that. Keep that in your head. Therefore, wrath came upon him in Judah and Jerusalem, but Hezekiah humbled himself for the pride of his heart, both he and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the wrath of the Lord did not come upon them in the days of Hezekiah. 
And Hezekiah had very great riches and honor, and he made for himself treasuries for silver, for gold, for precious stones, for spices, for shields, and for all kinds of costly vessels. Storehouses also for the yield of grain, wine, and oil, and stalls for all kinds of cattle and sheepfolds. He likewise provided cities for himself and flocks and herds in abundance, for God had given him very great possessions. This same Hezekiah closed the upper outlets, <coughs> outlet of the waters of Gihon, and directed them, <coughs> them down to the west side <coughs> of the city of David. And Hezekiah prospered in all his works, and so in the matter of the envoys of the prince of Babylon, who had been sent to him to inquire about the sign that had been done in the land, God left him to himself in order to test him and know all that was in his heart. Now, it's not as though God doesn't know what's in our heart, but we often don't. The heart is deceptive. It is desperately wicked. Who can understand it? And so God uses these times in those temptations, in those times of chastisement, in discipline, that we might understand, as the confession says, the deceitfulness of our own hearts, leading then therefore to a more careful care and watch over our lives that we might not repeat that in the future. And so... We have another example, of course, in the New Testament in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7 through 9. You know, the, you know the story, you know the event. It's that of the thorn of the flesh with the Apostle Paul. Now, we don't know what that thorn uh, was. We don't know if it's a physical matter or a spiritual matter. We don't know. The text is just not clear enough for our own curiosities. But what we do know is it troubled the Apostle. And he prayed for relief. And the Lord refused to give it to him, told him his grace was sufficient. But it was given for a purpose. 2 Corinthians 12, 7-9, Unless I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan, to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. In other words, lest I should become arrogant and boastful and proud. And so God used even the sin. He even used the, the, uh, the potentiality of sin, and he used the temptation and the matter related to it, all of the circumstances around it, that he might keep his servant from falling grievously uh, into sin. Now, God is able to do that. We are not, as, he, as the paragraph clearly says to us, and we must never forget, the most wise, righteous, and gracious God does these things. A part of the problem for us, I think, pastorally, is that we don't see it much as an act of grace. We suffer physically in the body. We don't see it as all that wise or, frankly, all that righteous. All we can see is the very moment in time in which we live and the circumstance in which we're enduring. And I do not mean to downplay the hardship of those things. They are hard. But we must never forget what, who stands behind them. These are not arbitrary events that just happen to us. No, these come from a father in heaven. He loves his children, but he is the alone one who is most wise, righteous, and gracious. And so in this act of grace, these things come into our lives that we might learn to walk in closer dependence upon the God of heaven. You see, part of the problem with us for us, especially Americans, but I suspect this is a problem universal for all human beings, is that we believe that we are so capable of doing just about anything. I was watching the news just the other day, and I, I hear, if I heard it once, I've heard it a million times, how Americans can do anything they set their minds to. 
The hubris of such a statement should never be marked by a Christian. God demands, in fact, He wants, He desires His children to walk humbly with Him. He wants them to walk in dependence upon Him. And He brings these things into our lives to remind us that we're not all that independent and we're not all that strong. That we might walk in closer dependence upon the God of heaven. My grace is sufficient for thee, he told the Apostle Paul. He told his disciples to watch and pray lest ye enter into temptation. He reminded Peter that Satan had asked for him, that he might sift him like wheat. But what did the Lord tell Peter? But I have prayed for you. Peter, remember, independent, strong-willed, I'll never deny you. Not once, not twice, three times. And he was broken over it. And God used that circumstance as directed by his most holy, wise, righteous, and grace, graciousness in the life of Peter to strengthen him for the work of the ministry in the church that was in front of him yet to be done. These things come to us. They're not pleasant. And nobody is saying that they are. The confession is not saying that these things are, these things are pleasant for us, but they're given to us that we might learn to walk in a closer dependence, a constant dependence upon the God of heaven. And so if you're struggling with physical sorrow and pain, maybe you're mourning the death of a loved one, um, maybe you're, you're, you're finding yourself under regular attack and temptation by the evil one, maybe it's temptation born out of the deceitfulness of your own heart, the solution is not try harder. The solution is appeal to the God of heaven and plead for His mercy and His grace. Lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from the evil one. As we pray that, we're, we're trusting that, the, that God knows best and what He will do. And if He does determine to lead us there, that He will uphold us and He will strengthen us in it, that we might learn to walk in a closer dependence upon the God of heaven and for other just and holy uh, purposes. And so it's vitally important that we recognize these things. Very pastoral, very helpful to us as we consider these things, these dark providences, these difficulties that come to our life. They are not there by accident. My friends, you need to trust, I need to trust the God of heaven. He knows what he's doing. And may he use those things to help us. Well, I trust these times are helpful for you. I hope they are. If you have any comments or questions, you can leave me a note. The way to reach me is there before you on the screen. And so until the um, Friday edition, may the Lord help you today and may you walk in his ways. God bless.